Dear Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that we share in the blood of your Son. We thank you for the Christmas season as we remember his birth and his coming into this world. We pray that you'll be with us this morning, um, that we'll think on your word and learn something from it. In your Son's name, amen. So the text today is Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, verse six through uh, Jonah chapter four eleven, which is the end of the book. And I'll just start by reading through the text. Then the tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yea, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, I beseech thee, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, which attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a sultry east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? So the question today is, do you do well to be angry? Anger is a difficult issue for Christians because it's something that is often a sin but can also be righteous. In this passage, we see God's righteous anger, and we see Jonah's sinful anger. The passage begins right after Jonah has reluctantly come to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and preached to them that God says, yet 40 days and the city will fall. The Ninevites unexpectedly repent of their sins en masse in hopes of turning away God's anger. And in a beautiful story of mercy, God relents and declines to destroy Nineveh. And this is what makes Jonah angry, that God would show mercy on people who are so undeserving of it. The Bible's filled with teaching about anger. Paul famously says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. Or in James, there's the instruction that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
The Bible uses many different words for anger. Even in the passage from Jonah here, there's two different words for anger. And sometimes they're translated, um, whether in Greek or Hebrew, as wrath. And sometimes they're translated as anger. And anger is a besetting problem for Christians. It's one of those sins that because it doesn't have an overt moral collapse associated with it, we often give it a pass. It's something that percolates in our life for a long time until perhaps it produces that overt moral collapse, and that's when people notice it. And so when Christians are asked this question from Jonah, do you do well to be angry? The answer is often a defensive yes, even as their lives are being torn apart by hearts that are filled with anger. Because there's always a claim justification for their anger. Anger is actually, it's about justification, and that's something that can be confusing. So I want to use this passage from Jonah today to flesh out an understanding of anger, knowing when it's righteous and knowing the vast majority of times when it's not and how to get rid of it. So I'd like to talk about this under three points. The first is about the deception of anger. The second is about the destruction of anger. And the third is how to overcome anger. So again, that's first the deception of anger, then the destruction of anger, and last, how to overcome it. So in thinking about the deception of anger, it's, it's first worth noting how, how many forms anger takes. You know, there's, there's really the obvious cases where if you're the kind of person who, who blows up and punches a wall, you scream and you yell, you storm out after a conflict with your spouse, that's the obvious kind of anger. But often, even in a marriage, in, if there's one person who's that kind of anger, the other person thinks, oh, I'm not angry. But they're just the person who, who bottles it up. They don't fly off the handle, but they bottle it up they repress it, and they start keeping that record of wrongs that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love does not keep. Or maybe you're the kind of person, and I confess that I've been this kind of person, where you say, oh, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. You know? Well, you're probably not frustrated, you're probably angry. You're, you're frustrated if there's something that you're trying to do for yourself, some goal you're trying to meet, and you just, you just can't quite get there. So, I'm, just, I'm just frustrated. But when you're frustrated at someone, you're really just angry with them, and you don't want to admit that you're angry, because then if you had admitted it, you would have to answer for whether or not it was righteous. And if you're making that kind of evasion, it probably isn't righteous. So first, there's that, that deception of anger in terms of whether or not you're angry at all. You don't want to acknowledge it. But more fundamentally, anger is deceptive because even when it's sin, it masquerades as righteousness. Um, there's righteous anger, and there's unrighteous anger, but all anger claims to be righteous. Anger is concerned with justice. It says that there's some kind of injury and it demands a retribution because some law has been broken or some right has been violated. C.S. Lewis in a letter to Arthur Greaves says that the pleasure of anger, the gnawing attraction, which makes one return again and again to its theme, lies, I believe, in the fact that one feels entirely righteous when one is angry. Then the other person is pure black and you are pure white. This could be the, the family of a murdered loved one claiming in court that the murderer must die for what he's done. It could be a husband fuming at his wife because he says she doesn't respect him or a wife yelling at her husband because he neglected to do some promised household chore for the 17th time. It could be two kids fighting over a toy. One of them claims that he has the right to the toy because it was given to him and the other one says that he has a right because of the sharing principle. Anger can be based on any alleged offense, and you know in your hearts the actual perceived offenses of others that make your blood boil. It could be 
as basic as someone was wrong on the internet or as serious as, you know, a husband or wife breaching the duties that God assigned them. And the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger is whether the claim of righteousness that anger makes is truth or is it a lie. Now, when God is angry because his law has been violated, like in Nineveh, the anger is righteous. Now, does that mean that if we're angry because God's law has been violated, that our anger is righteous? Not necessarily. And I think this is something that that Jonah illustrates nicely. God told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you had my my father's context of the Bible class in ninth grade, you know how great the the wickedness of Nineveh was. Nineveh is an ancient city. It's near uh, Mosul in modern Iraq. Um, It was the capital city of the Assyrians, and at the time, I believe, was the largest city in the world. Um, The Assyrians were a great but sort of trashy people. They thought of themselves, um, and everyone else in the region did, as culturally inferior to the other neighboring Mesopotamian civilizations, like the, the Babylonians. And they compensated for that cultural inferiority with sheer ruthlessness and brutality. They were famous, or notorious might be a better way of saying it, um, in the ancient Near East for the brutality of their warfare. King Ashurbanipal, who uh, came after the events of Jonah, said of his defeat of Suru, a city that rebelled against him, I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. With their blood I dyed the mountains red like red wool, and the rest of them the ravines and torrents of the mountains swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built a tower before their city with them. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Now, unless you think that Ashurbanipal was some sort of outlier, here's, uh, here's uh, Shalmaneser III. I filled the wide plain with the corpses of his warriors. Those rebels I impaled on stakes, a pyramid of heads I erected in front of the city. Or Sennacherib. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Their testicles I cut off and tore out their privates like the seed of cucumbers. And lastly, from S.R. Hayden. I hung their heads on the shoulders of their nobles, and with singing and music, I paraded through the public square of Nineveh. So this is the kind of thing you see in Nineveh. Someone's head chopped off um, and being made to, some king having his head chopped off and his nobles being made to carry it through the public square of Nineveh. Um, This is the kind of thing that would have been seen or heard about in Nineveh. Jonah would have been aware of the wrongdoing he may have been impact, but impacted by himself indirectly. So you can imagine how he felt yearning for these wicked, wicked Assyrians to get the destruction that they deserved. And then God tells him to go preach to them and tell them that they're going to get the destruction that they deserved. And you compare the kind of things that we get angry about. A slight to our dignity at work. An undone chore at home. A self-centered friend or family member. 
And know that those little grievances have nothing on the reasons for anger and wrath in Jonah. We can sometimes draw caricatures of those who wrong us, as if everyone who ignores us at a party is basically some kind of Hitler. But these Ninevites, these are like Mel Gibson level villains. You know, they are just over the top. And if there is any kind of righteous anger in the world, surely it was righteous anger at the people in Nineveh. But who had the right to be angry? Was it God or was it Jonah? Because when the Assyrians heed the warning that Jonah gives them and beg for their lives from God, as so many defeated kings begged for their lives in vain at the feet of the Assyrians, God instead relents from his anger. And Jonah is angry because he says, how can God show mercy to those who have shown no mercy? It is precisely that God relents from his anger that makes Jonah so angry. And this shows us that anger is sinful when it claims a right that belongs to God. Because whose standard was it that the Ninevites violated? Did they violate a moral standard that was given by Jonah on top of Mount Sinai before the foundation of the world? No, their wicked warfare violated a moral standard given by God. It was God's right to save or to destroy the Ninevites. And God asks Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left? As scripture says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And if God has chosen to show mercy for violations of his law, Jonah has no business insisting on the enforcement of that law. That's why James says the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That is the anger of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jonah's error and ours is in co-opting God's standards as our own and then trying to enforce them. That's why God asked Jonah why he is so angry about this plant dying. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah did nothing to create the plant or cause it to grow. He had no rights to it. So why does he count it as some kind of injustice to him that the plant, which was created by God, not him, is taken away? We sometimes think that because we know God's standards, we have the right to insist on their enforcement on our behalf. Like we know the scriptures teach that love fulfills the whole law, so that when we see our fellow believers abusing our kindness or our hospitality, we see them puffed up in pride, thinking only of themselves, we get angry at that abuse. We know that the scripture says, wives respect your husbands. So if she gives dishonor, complaints, and ingratitude instead, he gets angry. We know that scripture says, husbands, love your wives. So if he can't be bothered to pay attention because he's focused on football or video games or God forbid internet porn, she gets angry. We know that the scripture says, children, obey your parents. So when we see the house strewn with toys, chores undone, mouths full of entitled requests, we get angry. All these things are wrong, but they're not wrongs against our law. They are wrongs against God's law. Sometimes we think that we are actually more righteous because we know these standards and we insist on them. We demand to be treated fittingly like the Bible says a husband ought to be treated. And we can think that we're like David, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. 
but in fact, we're really just brooding on perceived breaches of the law that affect us day and night. It's not drawing us closer to God, it is separating us from him. It wasn't us that earned the right to respect as husbands, love as wives, or obedience as parents. It was God that commanded it. The wrong was not against our law, but his. What does he say about how to handle those wrongs? He says, never avenge yourselves. Don't return evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. Forbear, forgive. As far as God is concerned, whether the action that you're upset about was right or wrong is irrelevant to the righteousness of your response. Jonah's complaint about the wickedness of Nineveh was perfectly accurate, but his anger about it was completely unjustified. And because our anger is focused on ourselves, it's really a sham justice. Sinful anger uses God's righteousness as a pretext for self-centeredness. Jonah's encounter with the plant shows this. Jonah hasn't sought to be the caretaker or guardian of all plants worldwide to make sure that none perish um, prematurely. He doesn't care about the plants that grow in Tarshish. He doesn't care about the plants that grow and die in Jerusalem. He gets angry about one plant and one plant only, the plant that is growing over his head and giving him shade. And because his anger arises only when his ox is getting gored, the claim of justice that his anger makes is a fraud. It's, it's like selective corrupt prosecution. He goes after perpetrators of offenses that affect him and his cronies, but not when they affect other people. And that is no justice at all. We do the same things in our lives and in our marriages. You get furious when a fellow believer acts unkindly in a way that affects you, but somehow you remain curiously calm if their unkindness affects someone else. You're incensed when your wife disrespects you. Doth she not know what the Lord hath said? But strangely patient and forbearing when you see that it happened to some other guy. You're on a hair trigger about your husband's negligence and household duties, but perfectly fine overlooking them at someone else's house. You yell at your kids for their disobedience, but you manage to restrain the impulse for wrongdoing by someone else's. Now, that's not to say that you really just need to be egalitarian with your anger and just be angry at everyone's husband, everyone's wife, everyone's kids. But really that you should just be suspicious about that claim of anger, of justice that your anger makes. I'm not saying you should spread your anger around, but just know that if you're claiming to be angry but it's only about you, it's not really about justice at all. It's just a sham. So let's talk now about the, the destruction of anger. And that's that question, do you do well to be angry? Does this really benefit you? Jonah is so upset that God has spared thousands of people from destruction that he goes outside the city for days just to fume about it. He's not doing anything else. He is paralyzed by his anger. He doesn't want to do anything else except sit there and think about it. How can God show mercy to those who showed no mercy? In his mind, there's nothing righteous about what God has done at all. And focusing on this anger, he gets obsessed with even more petty wrongs. He started being concerned that the Assyrians were these wicked people who were impaling their enemies and flaying them and doing awful things with their bodies. And he ends being angry about a plant. And he's so angry that he's ready to die for it. So proud that when God asks him twice, if he really means it, he doubles down and says, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Well, we do the same thing as Jonah. 
Anger can lead us to draw off and close us off from relationships. There are people in our lives who we could and should enjoy being close to, but we cannot bear to do it because all we think about is how many times they hurt us and broke our rules. So we stand apart. But our distance can have the same effect on them, and those who should be close to us end up stepping away from one another in anger. We say, I don't want to talk to anyone now, and especially not her. We're embracing a self-righteous isolation that is the exact opposite of the self-sacrificing love to which we're commanded. And like Jonah, we get obsessed with petty issues. Our complaints may have been about big things to begin with, but the more we dwell on our anger, the more attenuated our complaints get from any concept of justice. You start being upset by someone's backstabbing, and you end being furious at their failure to RSVP. We start to see the objects of our anger, even the whole world around us, as a series of slights to our rights and dignity. She should have known. He has no excuse. No one should be treated this way. And we can get so angry and so proud in our anger that we will not let it go even when it is killing us. The obvious answer to the question, do you do well to be angry, is no. And there's obvious deliverance from anger in Christ. But that deliverance requires focusing not on our justice, but on his. And that we are too often unwilling to do. The long-term effects of anger are, are even worse. Anger compounded is bitterness. Anger can sublimate. Its effects may be less obvious. It's just an, an undercurrent. But unresolved, it festers. That's why St. Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because once you have slept brooding on that injustice, failing to release it or to forgive or forbear, you begin to cultivate a place for it in your heart. A place where all you think about are the unresolved things that you believe that have been done to you. You're not meditating on God's justice and righteousness. You're just meditating on your own justice and righteousness. And that is, in fact, unjust. C.S. Lewis remarks in Mere Christianity that while the effects of our anger on others might vary according to our position, the effects of anger on our own hearts is basically the same for everyone. He says, One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he'll only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of rage the next time he's tempted, and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. And because we get caught up in enforcing God's standards on our own behalf, we stay angry even when he's forgiven. This is exactly what Jonah did. God forgave the Ninevites. Jonah said, my standards are higher. My standards are better. I won't forgive. You see this a lot in marriages um, when they fall apart. There may be one spouse who has fallen down on their duties for years. And after years of screwing up, they finally figure it out and they get right with God about it. And they try to get right with it. There's the spouse that they've wronged. But it's too late for the other. That person has been brooding about the offenses unconfessed for years, and they refuse to forgive, no matter that God has forgiven. And marriage ends up dissolving. The same thing will happen to you if you won't let go of your anger. Your friends will keep their distance. Your colleagues won't trust you. Your spouse will be pushed away from you. 
and your children will fear you and they won't respect you because they'll know that your righteousness is a fraud. What reason do they have to worship a God whose servants like you are so consumed with their own bitterness and self-importance? And you'll be left alone, brooding about your rights, angry enough to die. So how do we overcome this? If you've realized that you have some kind of a problem with anger, if you realize that this is something that consumes you, um, you may be wondering, how do I stop thinking about me? How do I get over this? And how do I know when the anger that I'm feeling is righteous or unrighteous? Well, in trying to answer that first question, when is it righteous and when is it not, um, I'd first encourage you to begin with a heavy presumption against your anger. Because anger has a sort of pernicious, self-justifying nature, you should be deeply skeptical of the claims that your anger makes about being right. It always says it's right. It's got its thumb on the scale for that. So you need to put a rock on the other side of the scale that says, um, I'm not going to trust that self-justification. And when you start looking at these things, if you want to start examining your anger, it's going to be important to do going forward next time you're tempted. But you also need to do it looking back. Look back at all the prior times you were angry and ask this question of yourself. And if you discover that it was unjustified, if you were in the wrong, confess it, be freed from it, release it. So I'd like to offer a couple practical guideposts for you to think about your anger um, and figure out whether, like Jonah's, it's motivated by just an injustice that affects you or an injustice that affects others. So if all you seem to care about is when someone fails to show you respect or offends you or is inconsiderate to you, it's probably not righteous anger that you're dealing with. Someone who really cares about justice wants to see it administered in all cases, not only the cases they have a stake in. It's far better to be angry when you see injustice towards others and you want to stand up for it. Even there, you have to be careful because it's easy to start identifying justice to, in, to others as a proxy for our own interests. We can often do this with political causes that are really just a substitute for our own identity. We just replace anger about stuff that's been done to me with anger that's been done to fellow gun owners or religious liberty or, or something else. Doesn't matter whether it's a liberal or a conservative cause, if it's something that you're using as your self-identification and you're getting all riled up about it, um, watch out. So make sure that the injustice that you care about is because you really care about God's standards and not about your own interests. Now second, if you are angry about the injustice that's been done to you, seek first the repentance of the wrongdoer, not their punishment. Many of the examples of being angry that I've, I've talked about are about real wrongs. Fellow believers who have exploited your kindness, wives who don't respect their husbands, husbands who don't love their wives, children who don't obey their parents. Being righteously angry doesn't mean that we have to um, pretend those are not real offenses, that they're not really wrongs, that we don't have to do something about them, that we don't try to re remedy them, improve them, make them better. But it means that the focus of your care has changed. Rather than just focusing on how that wrong affects you, you care more about how it affects the person who did it and their relationship with God. You care about someone who has exploited your kindness, not because it hurts your pride, but because it shows the lack of love in your own heart. You care about your spouse's neglect of their duties, not because you are owed better, but because their disobedience puts them out of fellowship with God. And you care about your children's bad behavior, not because it's, it's a 
messing up your, how you run the house um, and you're, had an, you were entitled to better, but because it impairs their maturity and their growth in God. You're not confronting others in this because you're trying to extract a confession. You know, we need to talk because you shouldn't have said that to me. If anything, instead, you are pleading with them to change for their own sake. You want them to be restored to God more than you want them to be restored to you. In these situations, you want to pray, but not pray that you'll get your pound of flesh. Rather, you want to pray for the restoration and reconciliation of the wrongdoer. Doing so is going to put you on a path where you're going to be seeking closeness with those who hurt you rather than estrangement. And when you do care about God's standards, don't be like Jonah. Be prepared to accept and rejoice when the wicked repent, not to condemn them to a vengeance that God spared them from. As St. Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Um, and Jesus says, if your brother comes to you um, 70 times 7 in a day, you forgive him every time. Um, it's not that you, you have standards up to a certain amount and no more. Um, God's standards cover everything. Our forgiveness um, of our brothers needs to cover the same. And as you start reflecting on the self-interested nature of your anger, you might start to find that some of your former complaints that you were convinced were objective sins against the living God start to sound increasingly petty. You might look back and realize that, you know, it was a little bit extreme, you know, on that like 500 comment Facebook rant I got into, you know, or maybe when the grocery store didn't honor my manufacturer's coupon that wasn't such a big deal after all, you know, or when maybe like my friend forgot my birthday and didn't get me a present, like I can just let that go. Um, you'll start to be at peace with these things and you'll have perspective because you're going to be thinking about God's justice and not just about what injures you. So those are some, some practical tips for just evaluating your own anger, discerning whether it's righteous or not. But where do you get the strength to do this? You know, if you've been training yourself for your whole life to just think about you, 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 and what's been done to you, where are you going to start learning to not focus on yourself? Well, in doing this, I think you have to reflect on the gospel and on God's justice and his anger, his wrath. God's anger is justice, and his justice must be satisfied. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from within it. When God forgives someone from their sins, spares, him, spares them from his wrath, the wrath doesn't just evaporate and it's gone. There has to be some kind of justice for it. So where did God direct his wrath? He directed it onto himself, onto his son. The fact that our hearts demand a pound of flesh when we're wronged shows that what we all know intuitively, that when there's been wrongdoing, blood's required in exchange. If the sinners of Nineveh were to be forgiven for their murders, for their flayings, for their impalings, someone had to pay the penalty. Someone had to give satisfaction, and the only one who was capable of doing it was God himself. But God's justice Unlike ours, it's indiscriminate. It falls equally on everyone. It doesn't just fall on Nineveh. It falls on us. 
When Paul talks in Ephesians about not letting the sun go down on our anger, and about putting away anger, he uses the same root word um, in the, the preceding chapter, uh, which is translated as wrath, and it's to describe us all as children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Nineveh needs forgiveness, but so do we. If we as sinners are to be forgiven for our gossip, for our lust, for our pride, our contempt and hatred, someone had to bear the penalty that wickedness deserved. And Christ, out of his great love for us, bore that wrath willingly. And when he was lifted up on the cross, the crown of thorns and his thirst, those were the least of his sorrows. He bore in his body the wrath of God for every sin, from Cain and Abel to Nineveh to the Holocaust, to our darker lusts and dark actions, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the experience of God's wrath, separating the Son from the Father. Our hearts often say when we're angry, when someone insults our dignity, I don't deserve to be treated like this. We're missing the point. He did not, to be deserved, did not deserve to be treated like this. His bearing the wrath that we deserved was the only thing that could save us. And out of his great love, he emptied himself and was born in human form, lived a perfect and sinless life, and accepted the death sentence that each of us had earned and only he hadn't. We need the same mercy that Nineveh did. If we don't recognize that, we're like the unforgiving servant in Christ's parable. We're ready to receive mercy ourselves, but hypocritically refuse to give it to others on the ludicrous rationalization that we just prize justice too highly. We just really care about doing what's right. God forgave those wrongs, and he paid dearly to do it with the death of his son. For us to suggest that that's insufficient, that even after that's been done and he's discharged those debts, that we still require additional payment on top of that perfect sacrifice is to insult his mercy. And every time that you remain ang angry for something that God has forgiven, for something that God has covered, that is exactly what you're doing. You're insulting his sacrifice. We use our anger as self-justification, holding it up to say, look what others have done to me. Am I not justified? But your anger at others cannot save you from God's anger at you. If you think about the pain he bore to forgive you, it should change you. It should humble you to make you stop thinking about yourselves and these slights against you as if you created yourself or you created the plant or you created any of these other things in your life, as if you had any innate dignity apart from him. Instead, look to him as an example of bearing wrath against yourself when someone sins against you. Suffer the loss yourself. Forgive, love, and pray for those who wrong you. You have no place dwelling on the wrongs against you, no right to extract petty vengeance by closing yourself off from those you're angry with, brooding, moping, keeping a tally of grievances. And you certainly have no right to scream, curse, and rage about the wrongdoing of others. After Paul describes us all as children of wrath in Ephesians 2, he continues explaining that God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What Paul's describing here is the free and perfect heavenly reward that's promised to those whom God has forgiven and released from his wrath. But if you bear wrath from others, you show that you really don't understand that grace at all. Nineveh was merciless, but still received mercy. But Jesus says that if we will not forgive, we will not be forgiven. So be merciful, let go of your anger, knowing that God, in his mercy, has let go of his against you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time we've had together this, this morning. We thank you for the fellowship that we share. We ask that we would meditate um, on your justice and seek it. And thank you for your mercy. Be ready to extend it to others. In your son's name, amen.